Hi, my name is Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote. This podcast has been brought to you by the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. To learn more, visit www.thecgo.org. It is my honor to talk to Andrea O'Sullivan today. Andrea is a prolific writer and a columnist at Reason.com, where she writes on a vast number of technology issues. She is the director of the Center for Technology and Innovation at the James Madison Institute, a job that I think you're just starting, right? Yeah, it's actually uh, to be started. (laughs) Monday is my first day, but uh, I think we can... We're safe to use that title because I think by the time this comes out, I might already be there. Yeah. Well, congrats on that. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about Bitcoin, but I'm already telling all my viewers, I'm definitely going to try to have you back on to talk about other issues like privacy and the war against big tech soon. So welcome. Great. Yeah. I'd love to be back. (laughs) So before I start, I want to ask you a question that I ask all of my guests. What is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? Sure. So first of all, that's a great question. Uh, And I thought a little bit about this. And I think probably the most practical uh, thing you guys should know, which is something that every generation should know, is compound interest, right? Or the logic of compounding generally. Um, So there's the classic kind of thought experiment where you ask somebody, would you rather have $100,000 right now? or one penny that doubles every day for a month, right? And if you're like me, the first thing you think is, wow, $100,000 is like a ton of money. I'd love to have that right now. I'll put it all in Bitcoin, <laughs> right? You know, that that just, you see that big number and you think, let's, let's do that. And you think about the penny doubling, you're like, what, after 30 days, what is that? Like $17 in change. But actually when you sit down and do the math, that one penny doubling turns out to be somewhere well over a hundred or not a hundred, sorry, $10 million, right? Like some far greater sum by several factors of 10 than the um, hundred thousand dollars. And the reason uh, is that it is actually a geometric sequence. We tend to think linearly, which is why when you first hear about the penny, you think it's not going to be that much money, but because that number is growing on itself exponentially, it, you know, very quickly uh, shoots up in the exponent uh, into, you know, towards infinity. Uh, it, it just grows and grows and grows. So the implication of that, why, why does that matter? Well, right now we're going through the coronavirus crisis. So obviously there's an application there in terms of how these things spread, but more relevant to your long-term life, uh, that kind of tells you why it's so important to save right now. Uh, when you're young is when you, you know, well, at least me, when I put it on myself, uh, it's when you're most uh, more likely to, you know, want to just have fun today and kind of not think about tomorrow. But that's when you have the greatest benefits from saving money. Uh, that's going to pay the, the longest lifetime dividends. So uh, I, I highly recommend young people. I wish I took this advice sooner to heart. Uh, understand compounding and save money as soon as you can. 
I love that answer. It's so unique and very applicable. I don't yes. know. It's just, it's great. I mean, I definitely am going to take your advice. I've always kind of known about it, but I never really thought of its importance, I guess, because I'm young. But well, it's, I kind of, it's, it's lame, right? Like no one wants to think about saving money and the benefits are so far in advance, but like you're still going to be you uh, in the future. And wouldn't <laughs> you rather be rich? <laughs> I would. So you know, you, you make yourself a little less well off now to make yourself much, much, much more well off in the future. And we said applicable. I said yes, not because I thought that was like so brilliant, but uh, it's applicable to today's conversation about Bitcoin, uh, which is you know a a money and a savings technology. So that could be one good way for people to do that. Yeah, I mean, that's, I don't know. I like your answer. Um, oh, so you. let's, let's talk about Bitcoin. You were an early adopter and more importantly than that, you were one of the first scholars to write about this decentralized digital currency. Can you tell us what you think is great about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies? Sure. So I'll put my cards on the table right away. I am um, I consider myself to be a Bitcoin maximalist, which means that I tend to think that compared to most other cryptocurrencies, it's it's still the best. Um, I think there are special purpose cryptocurrencies, specifically privacy coins that offer their own unique value propositions. But for the most part, I do study um, and I'm the most interested in Bitcoin. So that's my bias uh, just right off the bat. So why do I like it? Um, so I guess I should talk about how I got into it. Um, I was an economics major right after the financial crash. And I'm somebody who is libertarian leaning. So I've always kind of been interested in monetary policy, some of the problems with monetary policy and the incentives that like the structure of central banks lend themselves to. And therefore, I'm interested in alternatives to that. And so out of the kind of chaos of this unprecedented monetary event where you had the Fed buying all kinds of crazy assets and governments bailing out industries, here comes Bitcoin. My husband is actually the one who found it um, randomly. And uh, it was a very, very kind of small little project. Uh, you know, wasn't worth much at all. Um, but it was immediately appealing to us because it was like, wow, here's a functioning technology that is... Um, a working alternative to government-created monies. What was so interesting about it, because anyone can go online and say, like, here's an Andrea book, <laughs> you know, I can create a file and send it to you and then say, here, accept this Andrea books for, you know, whatever goods and services. Uh, the problem that any kind of digital currency faced before Bitcoin was one of how do you enforce scarcity, right? What's going to stop somebody from just, like, copying and pasting that Andrea book and inflating the value away. Nobody wants to accept Andrea books. Who cares about that? Right. Um, so, you know, maybe you could do this with a central authority, right? Somebody who has a big uh, Excel file of all the Andrea books that have been created and where they go to, uh, you can maybe assign a little like serial number to it and track it. So you can enforce scarcity that way. But the downside to that is it's, it's a surveillance system, right? You have to know, everything about everyone's accounts and where they're sending money to. And, uh, you know, you have to make sure that they're not copying it. it. It's a big mess. What Bitcoin did was it allowed an online currency with uh, enforceable scarcity without the need for a central party for the first time. This was called the double spending problem, by the way. It was a long standing problem in computer science for decades since 
you know, the 60s and 70s, people have been noodling this over. So what Bitcoin did, what Satoshi Nakamoto, which is the name of the person or people who created Bitcoin, they found a way to, instead of having that one person with a spreadsheet in the center trying to track everything, you have computers all around the world that are running the code. And in doing so, uh, it uh, forces their computing power in a way that basically you can send money to anyone without needing the person in the middle, right? Just to kind of like go over, skip through all the complicated computer science. Uh, and it does it in such a way that you can verify, right? You don't need to, you don't need to trust the network, but you can at any time look at the tra train of transactions and verify, yes, that is where it's supposed to go. Um, and it doesn't require any central party or government to make it work. It just operates on the computing power of a decentralized network, which is amazing. I mean, it's, I feel like it's so complicated. <laughs> That's what I always, I keep trying to like look into it a ton and understand every little technical part of it, but I just can't. It's so complicated, but I think that's a good explanation. Um, so you mentioned Satoshi Nakamoto and I don't want to take you down this giant rabbit hole of like conspiracy theories, but what do we know about him or about them if mm -hmm. it's multiple people? So we know what he was influenced by, right? So there was a handful of like really smart people working on this for a long time, like single-mindedly, right? Um, they had an intense like passion for solving this problem. Um, so one of them is a man named Adam Back. Uh, he developed a protocol called Hashcash, which is a precursor to Bitcoin. And in fact, he's now in the, the Bitcoin world today, um, working for a company called Blockstream. So there was one development. Uh, there were two gentlemen by the names of Wei Dai and Nick Zabo. Uh, they both had their own kind of similar schemes, putting together the tools of cryptography and like hash cash and proof of work. Uh, it was called B Money and Bit Gold. I forget which is which. <laughs> um, so you can kind of see like the shadows of Satoshi in these earlier projects. Um, so we don't know anything about the individual or people like that actually made the code, but there very much was like a um, process, a scientific process that resulted uh, in Bitcoin. And I think that's what's interesting. I mean, people want to know, oh, who is who is Satoshi? Um, that person clearly or people, they clearly don't want to be known for a lot of very good reasons. Um, I think what's more interesting is the technology, right? And what, what we can do with it. This, it kind of reminds me of permissionless innovation, which is an issue that you and Adam Thier at the Mercatus Center have been very passionate about for a very long time. So can you explain to us what permissionless innovation is for those who don't know? Sure. So it's the idea that you should not need permission to innovate, right? If you have to stand in front of some body and say, this is why we need the iPhone, that regulator... Uh, it's going to come up with a million reasons why we don't. And you say, oh, well, the children will have access to foul media or who's going to want that anyway? It's going to be expensive and stupid or, you know, any number of, of excuses and justifications. And frankly, that's their job. Their job is to not like things. So they find reasons to not like them. Right. Uh, compare that to a system where we say, no, we want innovation. Right. Uh, you're free to innovate. 
And in fact, they want to talk with you and just kind of see where things are going. So, you know, we don't want somebody innovating a world destroying bomb. <laughs> it's not to say that there's no uh, place for oversight, but it's that the general cultural attitude is one that embraces innovation because really great things come from it. And you're absolutely right. Bitcoin is permissionless innovation crystallized. Imagine if somebody, well, we don't need to imagine, right? Look at what um, Mark Zuckerberg is trying to do with Libra trying to do something kind of cool in terms of like money remittances and online payments. Uh, but he's having to like justify himself in front of the world. And let's frank it. But let's be frank. Um, people have a lot of reasons to be upset with him. So his project may end up getting binned, right? Uh, with mm -hmm. Bitcoin, Satoshi, whoever he or she or they were, didn't ask permission for anyone. They just released the code into the world. Um, if it was a crappy project, nobody would have run the code, nobody would have mined it. So it would have kind of just languished in obscurity, but it's proven itself to be a very, very important technology. And now it's worth, um, it hovers around about $10,000 uh, recently, kind of dating this podcast. So something that many Bitcoin users believe is that our fiat money system kind of contributes to the fact that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer, that governments print too much money, that it inflates the currency and then low-income people are really affected by it. So what is wrong, do you think, with money today? And is that any way a reason for your support of Bitcoin? So first of all, that was a fantastic description of what's called the Cantillon effect. And that is absolutely one of the big criticisms that um, people interested in alternative currencies have. So it's the idea that people who are closest to the supply of money tend to benefit the most when the, in, the value is inflated, right? This isn't anything groundbreaking. You don't need to have a fancy name to understand the fact that people who are close to politicians or who are close to central banks, um, people who work in finance, they tend to have um, they have access to new money first, so they get to use it before the value has gone away. And absolutely, people at the lower income of, or the lower brackets of society, um, they don't see that benefit. In fact, they um, only see the consequences in the form of you know higher prices, decreased savings, or decreased value of savings, etc. What Bitcoin uh, is cool is it it kind of turns the incentives on its head. Um, right now, central banks, they're owned by governments, they have a monopoly on the creation of money. So, of course, there is an incentive to manipulate that to benefit powerful groups, right? Um, we don't need to say anything conspiratorial about, like, the United States. Look at kind of um, the worst possible cases, right? We can look at something like Venezuela, where they're, they're clearly a basket case. Their central bank clearly manipulates money for political gain. And look what happens to their currency. Look what happens to their society. Uh, it's no surprise that things like Bitcoin have taken off in places like Venezuela first because it offers a secure source of savings. Bitcoin is not created by political fiat. It's created based on, like I said, compound interest, right? Uh, so there's an algorithm um, that as opposed to like increasing over time, it decreases. So in the early days, um, whenever you would get new, new Bitcoins, like they're awarded at a steady rate at a steady um, amount. Uh, it was much higher than it is now. It's supposed to mimic basically uh, mining gold. It's called mining because at first gold is very plentiful. It's easy to get. It's just kind of like in the rivers of California. 
But as more and more people are spending more and more effort to like get that gold, it gets harder to get and you have to spend more um, resources to get it. So in a few years, um, every time people, every time a miner gets Bitcoin, it's going to be a very little amount indeed uh, until it reaches eventually the 21 million supply cap. So at no point in that process can any one person come along and say like, oh no, we've had a financial crisis. Now your Bitcoins are worth half of what they were before because reasons, right? Uh, you have the certainty that that Bitcoin will always be worth, one Bitcoin will always be worth one Bitcoin. Um, and there's no powerful group that can sneakily go in and try to rob your value through the money supply. So kind of talking about Bitcoin mining, it's the way in which Bitcoins are brought into existence, as you mm -hmm. kind of explained. So it's also a way that transactions are validated and confirmed. Right. And there are these things called halvening events. They're kind of what is it? They make it so that the amount that can be mined is half of what it was before. Exactly. So they're, they keep doing that. And the third one just occurred this past month. So do you have any thoughts on what's going to happen to the price of Bitcoin and the market cap over the next 18 months? So I'm of the camp where I think happenings and price discussions are kind of overblown. Um, maybe it's just because I've seen so many of them. <laughs> they're not that exciting to me. And I, I just kind of know they're going to happen. It seems like something for Bitcoin financial analysts to just talk about. What is maybe more interesting question is thinking about how the network is going to run once there is no mining subsidy. That's what we call the amount of Bitcoins that are um, granted every time that a new mining, a new miner find, discovers a block and adds it to the chain. So in other words, you said you're exactly right. So, uh, the miners are incentivized to run the network and validate transactions because they're going to get newly minted Bitcoins. Well, it's a, you know, there's a supply cap. So at a certain point, that subsidy is going to go away. So a lot of people say, well, at that point, instead of getting a subsidy, they'll just subsist on uh, fees that people can attach to the transaction to kind of entice the miners to process theirs, right? Uh, other people say, well, because of the economic structure, that's actually not going to be very good and transactions will be just so, so, so expensive and no one's going to want to do it. Um, other people say, well, to prevent that kind of Y2K type scenario, right, where there's like a catastrophe looming and we just don't know what to do about it. We can try to work on solutions above Bitcoin that work with Bitcoin to kind of make it uh, more uh, sustainable. Um, so that that's a very interesting debate. I don't have any specific insight to it. I'm of the camp that thinks that it's probably going to be okay and we're probably going to find a solution. Um, but that's certainly an unknown at this point. I mean, yeah. What do you think is going to happen when it when all the Bitcoin is mined? I think by that point, Bitcoin will be worth so much. <laughs> I mean... I, I'm not going to lie, I'm forgetting the date by which it's supposed to happen off the top of my head. But I mean, in 10 years, we've seen a price of, of $10,000 when it just as easily could have been zero, right? It just as easily could have failed. And now we're seeing groups like Fidelity have like dedicated Bitcoin desks. Actually, just this week, Goldman Sachs came out and said, Bitcoin is not an asset and like caused all this 
you know, debate within the community really was a lot of trolling of Goldman Sachs because they at one point had their own cryptocurrency desk. So it just kind of looks like sour grapes. My point being, uh, it's there's a lot of money in it. There's a lot of smart money in it. Um, so, yeah, I think we'll we'll figure out a good solution. And wherever we go, I'm, I'm pretty sure the price is going to go up. <laughs> yeah. So something I find interesting is the fact that so many people have over and over again predicted and they continue to predict the end of cryptocurrency of bitcoin so i feel like they're wrong because it hasn't happened yet and from the beginning you've been on the front line warning people that they were too quick to declare this failure are you still confident in bitcoin as much as you were back then Oh, absolutely. Uh, There's this concept called the Lindy effect. So it's this idea that the longer that a technology has been around, the more likely it is to continue um, just because it's proven itself to be so beneficial. That doesn't always hold, right? So like the horse and buggy was around for a long time before it wasn't. That's not to say anything who's been around will never go. But I think that Bitcoin is an example of a technology that absolutely exhibits the Lindy effect. I think that the longer that it exists, the, the more it has proven its value proposition. That is, that it's a secure and um, censorship-resistant store of value. Um, so, yeah, that makes more people more confident that it'll continue to do so. So it's nice to be able to say, I told you so. <laughs> but there's, there's this kind of funny website. It's called, um, I think it's called Bitcoin Obituaries, 99 Obituaries. You might just Google it, but it has all of these people who have been just like drinking that haterade for, you know, the whole decade that it's been around and everyone's so quick. It's like Bitcoin has reached $15. Here's why it's an unsustainable bubble, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So it's, it's kind of funny. And I mean, we laugh at them, but uh, it is a a totally kind of new paradigm onto which a lot of um, our contemporary assumptions don't neatly fit. Um, So it's, yeah, it, it's it's easy to be wrong about this. Let me put it that way. Um, but I'm very. It's a good thing that these people are wrong because I think it's such a beneficial technology, and I think that once we adjust to it, we'll have um, a much better quality of kind of analysis. And even if Bitcoin over time stops being used or loses its value, I don't think that's going to happen. But if it happens, if Bitcoin somehow goes away, the technology won't go away which is kind of the important part, right? Because then you can innovate on that. It's like the Napster of the money world. I don't know. Yeah, sure, sure. Or you could say it's the um, the, the BitTorrent, right? Because <laughs> Napster was centralized and BitTorrent was peer-to-peer. But no, your your analogy absolutely is, is accurate, I think. So now I kind of want to go through some of the common arguments against Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies or the common misconceptions. So the first one is that Bitcoin and blockchain technology are the same thing. Right. So um, that's like saying that Apple and computers are the same thing, right? Uh, So blockchain is a type of technology. Bitcoin was the first blockchain technology. Um, There's a lot of other cryptocurrencies and there's some efforts to do like non-monetary blockchains. I personally don't think those make 
very much sense because currency is very much at the heart of why a blockchain was designed. It's an incentive mechanism, and it's a little awkward to have a blockchain without that. Um, a lot of the quote like enterprise blockchains or like non-monetary blockchains, what, what do they call it? Distributed ledger technologies. There's all these like corporate terms. Um, a lot of those really what they were describing was just like the need for an internal database. Like if you are Walmart, you don't need a trust minimizing technology because you trust yourself ostensibly. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, and I think that was kind of a, um, a, a buzzword right around like 2015 to 17. Uh, I think now people are kind of realizing that that doesn't make that much sense. Um, but there is a distinction uh, and there's all kinds of different blockchains and cryptocurrencies, but Bitcoin is just the first and uh, in my opinion, the most important. So another thing people say is that Bitcoin is basically like air because it's not backed by any assets like gold. Sure. Uh, I mean, it's backed by the network, right? Um, Which you could say it's backed by time. I mentioned the Lindy effect, right? The longer that something's been around, the more likely it's going to continue. Bitcoin kind of builds on that because it it literally uh, uses time in the form of the blockchain as proof that like this is secure. You can look at the blockchain and verify it at any time. Uh, It's never been broken and it ostensibly never will be broken um so uh yeah it uh certainly has that value proposition so a lot of people talk about how bitcoin is anonymous and how that's a problem because then it's like villainous like if you want to connect it to a villain or make it seem bad you say that the villain was paid to commit the crime with Bitcoin, but Bitcoin isn't really anonymous, is it? No, it's pseudonymous. And in fact, it's funny, whenever I hear the the criticism that Bitcoin is anonymous, I just think about, well, within the Bitcoin community or the cryptocurrency community, the criticism is that Bitcoin is not anonymous. Uh, the, The criticism is that the blockchain is one big surveillance network, which it is. Um, the difference is that, I mean, it, it's a surveillance network because every transaction is transparent and on the blockchain for all time, right? So if you decide to commit a crime using Bitcoin, evidence of that crime will always be there in the form of that entry in the ledger. And the cops can and do track that down. There are whole companies that are developed to help cops do that, to be able to do chain analysis. Um, so where Bitcoin is good for privacy is that you can create as many addresses as you want. Um, Obviously, if you keep sending between certain addresses, the cops will be able to tell, okay, this person talks to each other. They they deal with each other a lot, so they might be connected. Um, There's other tools you can use to kind of conceal your tracks. Um, So you can do things to kind of conceal where the coins came from or where they're going. Um, Those are called coin joins or um, stealth addresses, right? These are two different technologies. Um, But then I I mentioned earlier, there are specific cryptocurrencies that build these kinds of privacy technologies in from the very start. Uh, Two really interesting ones are Zcash and Monero. Uh, They achieve this in different ways. Um, The the kind of 
there's a tension there, though, right? So one of the nice things about Bitcoin is that you can verify the blockchain at any time. So you can do this to kind of audit. So let's say a company says they're holding Bitcoin, a bank, right? They're, they're holding Bitcoin on behalf of their customers. You could theoretically be able to look into their wallet at any time and verify whether or not they actually have those Bitcoins, right? It's kind of a, a decentralized FDIC. Well, with something that is totally opaque, you can't do that. So in, in that regard, there is a tension between privacy and transparency. Uh, and that's one that the, the community is still kind of grappling with, both techno technologically um, and philosophically. So there's also the argument that Bitcoin isn't safe because Bitcoin is stolen all the time by hackers and people like that. Yeah, I mean, that's probably accurate, right? So um, my husband has a pretty good setup for our Bitcoin, so I'm not super worried about that. But like, I'm not going to lie, if I was setting out to do it on my own, I might make a mistake, I might, you know, easily lose money. Um, so what a lot of people like to do is they keep their money on a third party exchange, like Coinbase is the biggest one. Um, they've been around for a long time, and they're pretty good at what they do. Um, the problem with that is you have to then trust Coinbase to hold your money, um, but also to not collaborate with governments, maybe, right? So there was an issue with the state of New York, uh, or was it the IRS? <laughs> one of the two um, demanded that Coinbase turn over, inf I believe this one was with the IRS, demanded that Coinbase turn information on all customers um, that had deposits of a certain amount, I think it was $10,000, right? This is called... Um, anti-money anti laundering, know your customer type regulations. Um, so, you know, in, in that situation, you're kind of like just using a, a typical bank. So you get the security, you know, but then you, you lose some of the values of like sovereignty um, and being your own bank. So there's definitely a learning curve and I'm not going to recommend anybody just like go out and put all their money in Bitcoin and not know how to secure it because it, it's, it's very important that you know what you're doing. I mean, I think that's for a lot of things. It's important to know what you're doing. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> but I mean, with money especially. So another thing that I have heard about is that blockchain technology is good way. You kind of mentioned this um, with Venezuela and other stuff is that it is the best way for people in countries with corrupt governments to safely exchange titles, like property. So I wouldn't say that has been proven in terms of like using the blockchain to transfer property. There's this idea of smart property, right? Where you can either have a literal piece of property like a car with like a QR code that you then scan and it automatically will like make the payment for you to rent that car and then it unlocks it. Um, so in other words, the method of enforcement is embedded in the uh, property itself. That's an interesting theoretical concept. It hasn't been proven. Then another idea is the idea of like transferring titles to property on the blockchain, uh, which again is theoretically very interesting, but you're still in meat space, right? You still need somebody to enforce that at the end of the day. And if you're in a corrupt country, you would need to rely on either the courts or the police or a warlord or <laughs> mafia, you know, whatever the, the literal like uh, power center is in that area to, to enforce it, unless you want to do that yourself, which is pretty difficult with like physical property. 
Um, I think that the use case for cryptocurrency in developing countries is the one for which blockchain was initially developed, which is a savings technology. Um, it's one that no government could take even if they wanted to. So I don't know if you knew this, but during the Great Depression, uh, FDR stole like a good amount, <laughs> stole, uh, appropriated a good amount of the country's gold, right? He just signed an executive order and that was it. The gold was gone. And if you didn't have mm -hmm. an army to protect your gold, what are you going to do? Are you going to go up against the federal government? That kind of environment exists in countries like Venezuela, you know, around the world today. Uh, with something like Bitcoin, you don't need to like have a vault and men with guns holding your, your gold. In fact, nobody needs to know that you have gold at all. You just have uh, a piece of paper, perhaps, or, you know, a thumb drive, uh, and you can you can save it that way. Uh, even if somebody did get like the thumb drive, like, let's say they don't have your private key. Uh, so it's, it's absolutely a very um, secretive, right? It's a very um, discreet savings technology. So I wanted to ask you, what, in your opinion, are the most promising cryptocurrencies coming up other than Bitcoin? <laughs> so uh, the other one I should probably mention is Ethereum. Um, Ethereum has been around since I think around 2013. Uh, it is what's called a smart contracting platform. So I talked about smart property. Smart contracts are the thing that would make smart property work. Um, mm -hmm. Smart contracts online is something like you could do like a betting market, right? Where you write out a smart contract and you say, I think that the Dow will go up by, you know, however many points by this date and you make a bet on it. And if it goes up, it pays out and if it goes down and, you know, you lose the money. And it just, it happens automatically because it's programmed into the script and it's done with cryptocurrency. So you don't even need to worry about like banks or anything it just automatically executes based on some external data source, which is called an Oracle. So Ethereum is, is custom built for that. Um, it's not something I study too extensively, um, but it, it does have a, a unique value proposition. The other big area uh, of interest for me, again, is, is uh, privacy coins. So Zcash, Monero, there's other projects, but those are the two that I pay the most attention to. So something I think of something we've kind of, I mean, we talked about Venezuela a little bit, but um, there are about 4 billion people that live under authoritarian regimes in the world. So, I mean, that's a lot. And in addition to that, there are governments like the ones in Europe and in America that overspend and inflate currency and they engage in surveillance and restrict individual rights stuff like that. They invest in welfare and all this stuff. So where in places where rule of law and property rights aren't really respected and aren't completely enforced, how does Bitcoin matter to individuals for their individual rights? How can Bitcoin empower individuals when governments seem too corrupt or too powerful? So yeah, so the obvious use case is they have some asset that they can purchase and they can perhaps, um, have, if they have family, right, from outside of the country, they can send them Bitcoin instead of having to go through like Western Union, so the uh, remittances, right, that's, a, that's an obvious use case. Um, but I'm not going to lie, in a lot of places, like Bitcoin is not a panacea, right? So if you live in a crumbling country where... Um, 
you know, you're fearing for your life, like, are you going to necessarily know, like, how to safely get Bitcoin? I talked about the security issue. Um, do you have the on-ramps to get into Bitcoin to begin with, right? I mean, this is all pretty complex stuff. So there are groups that are, like, dedicated to helping people in these situations safely access cryptocurrencies, safely access remittances through cryptocurrency, and they do fantastic work, but there's still a lot more to be done. We can't just say, oh, buy Bitcoin. Like, I think it's great, but I think there's a lot of other um, on-the-ground problems that we need to be addressing, too, so that people can do that to begin with. So... With mass adoption of Bitcoin, I mean, a lot of people kind of invest in it, but if more people did, would there be less demand for fiat currencies like US dollars? And well, Yeah, I mean, a lot of people think that. So there's this concept of a lot, I mean, a lot within the context of the Bitcoin community. Uh, there's this concept called hyper-Bitcoinization. So that's the idea that there will be a tipping point at which very, very poorly run government currencies, people will just flee from them and they will adopt Bitcoin en masse because it's just such a superior currency. I'm not sure that we'll see that in the United States anytime soon. <laughs> not mm. too radical of a statement for me to say there. Uh, I think it's, it's possible we may see um, isolated cases of that in countries that are like really, really bad. Um, but, you know, it's like the fall of the Soviet Union, right? At one point, it was just common knowledge that it would exist forever until it didn't. There was one tipping point moment. So I think if such a situation would come to be, um, I think it would, in, in retrospect, it would have seemed obvious, right? <laughs> right now, it seems out of the question. But once it happens, people will say, well, how didn't we see that coming? And if governments had to compete with the blockchain technology and the innovations that come with that, what do you think would happen? Well, we see China is actually rolling out its own digital currency this year. Um, and of course, it, it says that it's going to respect privacy. And, you know, I'll leave it up to the, the listener to decide whether they believe that. Um, we had even <laughs> Venezuela had a, a joke of a cryptocurrency called PetroCoin, which was ostensibly supposed to be backed by oil, but it is never clear how that actually worked out. And the Venezuelan government itself seems to have quietly just not mentioned it anymore, <laughs> perhaps out of embarrassment. But um, so we do see some um, central banks and governments try to either think of how to introduce their own uh, cryptocurrencies. And it's not just maybe governments we wouldn't want to live under, um, places like, you know, the United Kingdom and um, I believe Sweden. Yeah, Sweden with the e-corona. And even the United States, you know, when we were talking about these um, coronavirus stimulus checks, there was one version of a House bill that included the idea of an e-dollar, which would immediately deposit this money into your account. So central banks are absolutely thinking about it and thinking about, um, you know, how they can have their own, like, you know, U.S. Bitcoin or whatever they want to call it. Um, I think the more interesting possibility would be whether central banks would decide to ask, add them to their asset portfolios. Um, I, I believe some of them, I mean, they're, they're thinking about it. I don't know uh, if anyone's outwardly made any like big uh, announcements about that, but that's something else I, I would expect to see more discussion of in coming years. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I would be open to it. So finally, what is one thing that you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? 
So this is a good question. And, you know, I didn't have too much time to think about it because you just told me about it a, couple, a little bit before the, the podcast. So this is a little on the fly. No, 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 it was good. It's a good exercise. Um, but, you know, I think I used to think that politics was a, or policy really too, was a, a matter of changing minds, right? Um, bringing the best facts to bear and, um, you know, the, the obviousness of, of the truth of my positions would be so clear that, you know, everyone would come to these great solutions. But I've learned that everyone thinks that, you know, who am I to think that I have the right uh you know, opinions. I certainly think so. But I found that when you appeal to facts, it tends to have the opposite outcome. Often um, people just use that to argue against and further support of their worldview. And that's part of the reason that I'm so excited about things like Bitcoin, because they just happen. <laughs> you know, you don't, I don't need to convince anybody that it's such a great idea. I don't need to uh, convince anyone that we need a private currency. I don't need to stand in front of the board of regulators or, you know, big brained academics to prove that this is what we need to do. It's, it's just happening on its own. And it's amazing because it's totally peaceful. Um, it's a pretty major paradigm shift in terms of how we think of money and, and power and finance, and it's happening totally voluntarily, and um, it's a lot of fun, too. So I guess, yeah, I've learned that a lot of times you just can't expect to win by um, argumentation or, again, asking permission. Um, the best solutions sometimes are the ones that just cannot be avoided. It just are happening. And that's Bitcoin. That's a great answer. Thank you so much. This has been an amazing interview. I've learned so much. And I, I'm probably going to go try to invest in some sort of cryptocurrency. And I hope that my listeners will become interested in this as well if they aren't already. So yeah, thank you. Thanks, Julia. This has been so fun. <laughs>